The world headlines. Latest Russia-Ukraine updates. U.S. puts 8,500 troops on alert. Roughly 8,500 American troops have been put on heightened alert in the U.S. in case NATO activates its response force or if the security situation in Europe deteriorates further, the Pentagon has said. Meanwhile, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell sought to calm Western fears over the Ukraine crisis after talks with U.S. top diplomat Antony Blinken. We know very well what the degree of threats are and the way in which we must react. And no doubt we must avoid alarmist reactions, Burrell said on Monday. You have to stay calm doing what you have to do, and avoid a nervous breakdown. NATO allies have put forces on standby and sent ships and fighter jets to bolster Europe's eastern defenses as tensions soar over Russia's military buildup near Ukraine. The Security Alliance's move, announced on Monday, came as the United Kingdom began withdrawing staff from its embassy in Kiev as fears persist of an imminent Russian invasion following Russia's massing of some 100,000 troops near its neighbor. The Kremlin has repeatedly denied planning to make an incursion. U.S. and allies express shared desire for diplomatic resolution after a virtual meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and European and NATO leaders, the White House said the allies expressed their shared desire for a diplomatic resolution to tensions with Moscow, but they also warned Russia of massive consequences if it invades Ukraine. The leaders also discussed their joint efforts to deter further Russian aggression against Ukraine, including preparations to impose massive consequences and severe economic costs on Russia for such actions as well as to reinforce security on NATO's eastern flank, the White House said in a statement on Monday. What is company culture in the remote work era? Ports at work. Nearly two years into the pandemic, many business leaders are concerned that remote work hurts company culture. They're also a bit sad without it. I know I'm not alone in missing the hum of activity, the energy, creativity and collaboration of our in-person meetings and the sense of community we've all built," Apple CEO Tim Cook wrote in a June memo explaining why he eventually wants workers back in the office at least part-time. I worry we're creating a culture where people are not exposing themselves in ways they would be in the office, Judith Carr Rodriguez, CEO of New York City advertising firm FIG, told Bloomberg last month. A 2021 PwC survey found that 29% of U.S. executives like the idea of employees being in the office at least three days a week for the sake of company culture, while 18% said they prefer four days a week in the office and 21% voted for five days a week in the office. These executives aren't wrong, exactly. Working from home can indeed make it harder for employees to forge relationships with one another. 65% of people who switched to remote work during the pandemic say they feel less connected to their co-workers, according to a December 2020 survey from the Pew Research Center. And some management experts have theorized that employees' newfound sense of detachment is one contributing factor in the great resignation. But if the shift to remote and distributed work has made some employees feel less connected to one another and, by extension, to their companies, is that such a problem? Perhaps it's a sign that business leaders need to re-examine their views on what actually comprises company culture, and whether our traditional models are out of date. Is a close-knit culture good? Company culture is a wide-ranging concept, which can encompass everything from whether employees include their gender pronouns in their email signatures to whether meetings tend to be agenda-driven or meandering. USA 1999 transformed women's soccer. Can Beijing 2022 do the same for ice hockey? In 1996, 
the U.S. women's basketball team won Olympic gold in Atlanta, providing a solid foundation for two professional leagues. The WNBA, which had the backing of the NBA and better marketing, outlasted the ABL and continues to this day. After their victory on home soil at the 1999 World Cup, the U.S. women's soccer team seized the spotlight and parlayed that attention into a professional league. That league collapsed, but waves of publicity over the next decade have yielded a solid fan base determined to keep professional women's soccer running. So when will women's ice hockey get its moment? Since the sport joined the Olympic program in 1998, North American rivals Canada and the U.S. have dominated to an extent that makes Scottish soccer's Rangers Celtic lockdown on the top spots pale in comparison. Only once in the Olympics and only once in the World Championships have the big two not faced each other in the final. Total solar eclipses happen more often than losses by either team to someone other than each other. With the two dominant countries in the sport sharing a border and already collaborating on the world's top men's league, the NHL, why have we not seen a viable fully professional women's league? Why isn't seven-time world champion and 2018 gold medalist Megan Duggan, who now works for the NHL's New Jersey Devils, as easily recognizable as Megan Rapinoe? When will women's hockey have a professional league final with TV ratings to match the average of 548,000 for the 2021 WNBA finals or the 653,000 who watched the 2020 NWSL Challenge Cup final professional hockey salaries briefly edged up to $25,000 for one year but immediately dropped back to the low five figures and below. For comparison's sake, the NWSL, National Women's Soccer League, has a minimum salary that has risen from four figures to $22,000, a number sure to go up with upcoming collective bargaining. The average salary in the WNBA is more than $120,000. NHL buzz, Nugent Hopkins could return for Oilers against Canucks. Edmonton Oilers. Ryan Nugent Hopkins could return to the lineup for the Oilers against the Vancouver Canucks on Tuesday, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, SN, ESPN Plus, NHL Live. The forward has missed six games since he sustained a lower body injury in a 6-5 overtime loss to the New Jersey Devils on December 31. Edmonton also had six games postponed in that span, first day, full participant, Oilers coach Dave Tippett said Monday. We'll skate again tomorrow morning to make the final call. But that's the first day he's put lots of pressure on and gone through practice in full. If we think he's not going to take a step back tomorrow or be sore tomorrow, he could be a player tomorrow. We'll make that decision in the morning. Nugent Hopkins has scored 26 points, 3 goals, 23 assists in 30 games. Washington Capitals. John Carlson is playing for the Capitals against the Vegas Golden Knights on Monday, NHLN, TVAS, NBCSWA, ATTSNRM, after missing four games while in NHL COVID-19 protocol. The defenseman skated Monday for the first time since playing against the New York Islanders on January 15 and said he's unsure how he will feel during the game. I think you just try to do the best you can, Carlson said. I felt good this morning, but who knows what tonight will bring. I think people know what they can and can't do out there, and I think we'll find out pretty quickly how I feel and what I need to do to be my best with that." Defenseman Dmitry Orlov returned after serving a two-game suspension for kneeing Winnipeg Jets forward Nikolai Ehlers on January 18. 
Defenseman Nick Jensen missed his third straight game with an upper body injury, and coach Peter Laviolette said he is week to week after being re-evaluated. Forward TJ Oshie missed his fifth straight game and remains day to day with an upper body injury. Tom Galitti, Minnesota Wild. Cam Talbot started for the Wild against the Montreal Canadiens on Monday after missing five games with a lower body injury. Can the US and Europe stop Russia from attacking Ukraine? Servicemen of Russia's Eastern Military District units attend a welcoming ceremony as they arrive at unfamiliar training ranges in Belarus combining their own means of transport with traveling by train, to take part in a joint military exercise held by the Union State of Russia and Belarus and aiming to simulate repelling an external attack on its border, cutting possible supply lines for invaders as well as detecting, containing and eliminating their combat and subversive units. Fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine are growing, as the military buildup at the border shows no sign of dissipating and crisis talks remain at an impasse. As the US and UK respond with threats of sanctions and more, and withdraw diplomatic staff from their embassies in Kyiv, analysts are questioning whether the West can actually deter Russia, and just how far Western allies are willing to go to defend the country. While Russia continues to send additional troops and weaponry to the Ukraine border, there seem to be some divisions among the Western allies about how to respond, Helen McCroft, head of global commodity strategy and Middle East and North Africa research at RBC Capital Markets, said in a note Sunday evening. While they have all promised a tough response, the UK and the US have gone furthest in pledging crippling economic sanctions and indicating that Russia indeed has invasion plans and is seeking to install a pro-Kremlin leader in Kiev. By contrast, the German naval chief was forced to resign after stating that Putin deserved respect and suggesting that Berlin should join forces with Moscow against Beijing, and Chancellor Scholz called for prudence in the application of sanctions. I think I might have COVID-19. Should I isolate or quarantine? You should stay home for at least five days after a COVID-19 exposure or infection in most situations, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said last month cutting in half its previous 10-day guidance. The guidelines come with a lot of caveats. Precisely what to do depends on factors including whether people are severely sick, their vaccination status, and even sometimes their occupation. Isolation means staying home when you are sick or you tested positive, while quarantine refers to staying home if you have been exposed to someone with COVID-19. Getting a rapid test around day 5 of an infection before leaving isolation is optional in the CDC's guidance. Yet modeling data suggests that about one-third of people are still infectious after day 5, according to the CDC. Some public health experts recommend that people test negative on a rapid antigen test before leaving isolation. People shouldn't take a PCR test to leave isolation, the test is so sensitive that it can pick up traces of the virus after a person is no longer infectious. People who are in close contact with someone with COVID-19 should get tested at least five days after exposure, even if they don't develop symptoms. Here are the basic trajectories for isolation or quarantine. Regardless of the particulars, everyone who tests positive for COVID-19 or comes into close contact with an infected person should maintain cautious behavior, including wearing a well-fitted mask and avoiding travel, eating in restaurants or being around people who are at high risk for severe disease for the full 10 days, the CDC says. People should immediately isolate if they develop symptoms at any point in the process, the CDC says. What are US options for sanctions against Putin? 
Washington, the financial options being considered to punish President Vladimir Putin if Russia invades Ukraine range from the sweeping to the acutely personal, from cutting Russia off from US dollars and international banking to slapping sanctions on a former Olympic gymnast reported to be Putin's girlfriend. Publicly, the United States and European allies have promised to hit Russia financially like never before if Putin does roll his military into Ukraine. Leaders have given few hard details to the public, however, arguing it's best to keep Putin guessing. And weeks into the negotiations, it's far from clear that Americans have succeeded in achieving US and European consensus on what sanctions will be imposed and what would trigger them. A look at some of the financial actions under consideration, swift retaliation. For the US and its European allies, cutting Russia out of the swift financial system, which shuffles money from bank to bank around the globe, would be one of the toughest financial steps they could take, damaging Russia's economy immediately and in the long term. The move could cut Russia off from most international financial transactions, including international profits from oil and gas production, which in all accounts for more than 40% of the country's revenue. Allies on both sides of the Atlantic also considered the swift option in 2014, when Russia invaded and annexed Ukraine's Crimea and backed separatist forces in eastern Ukraine. Russia declared then that kicking it out of SWIFT would be equivalent to a declaration of war. The Allies, criticized ever after for responding too weakly to Russia's 2014 aggression, shelved the idea. Russia since then has tried to develop its own financial transfer system, with limited success. The US has succeeded before in persuading the SWIFT system to kick out a country, Iran, over its nuclear program. Justice for PFAS exposure races a ticking clock. Brenda Hampton says the heart attack she endured last month might be a blessing in disguise, a second chance at challenging a complex legal system that barred her from seeking compensation for years of renal failure. I'm thinking God is opening the door for me. I've got a feeling of that, Hampton, the founder of Concerned Citizens of WMEL, West Morgan and East Lawrence, Water Authority, told The Hill. Through her organization, also known as Concerned Citizens of North Alabama Grassroots, Hampton has been raising awareness about the severe contamination from forever chemicals, perenn polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, that have for decades plagued portions of Alabama's Lawrence County, where Hampton lives. PFAS are sometimes called forever chemicals because they can accumulate in the body over time, instead of breaking down, and also linger in the environment for decades on end. Hampton, 66, has been investigating the Northern Alabama contamination personally since 2015, as well as bringing bottled water to impacted residents and championing local legal battles involving impacted water agencies and residents. Her grandparents both died of renal failure, as did her mother in 2001, just four years after Hampton gave her a kidney. But despite suffering from renal failure herself since 2015, Hampton had long ago abandoned the idea of pursuing a lawsuit, with the understanding that from a legal perspective, it was simply too late. After I knew that it was a two-year limit for Alabama and I was still here, I was saying that my options were gone because I didn't file immediately then, Hampton said. The two-year limit to which Hampton was referring is known as a statute of limitations, a state-level law that dictates. Biden administration considers technology sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine. Washington, in the months since Russia began massing troops on the border of Ukraine, the Biden administration has, on multiple occasions, warned that any further aggression by Moscow toward its neighbor would be met with unprecedented levels of sanctions. 
Now, the White House appears to be dropping some specific hints about what those sanctions might look like. According to multiple confirmed media reports, the administration has begun laying the groundwork for a ban on the sale of high-technology products containing U.S.-made components or software to Russia. The plan echoes steps the Trump administration took against the Chinese telecommunications giant Huawei in 2020, barring vendors from selling the company's semiconductors it needed to produce mobile telephone handsets. The ban had devastating consequences for Huawei's business. Once the world leader in smartphone sales, it has fallen to 10th overall since the ban was put in place. The extent to which the administration intends to cut off Russian supplies of high-tech gear is unclear, and that's probably intentional, experts said. As with any sort of major event, or crisis, or potential invasion, government leaders want options, from strongest to weakest and everything in the middle, in terms of actions that can be taken, Kevin Wolf, a former assistant secretary of commerce for export administration in the department's Bureau of Industry and Security, told VOA. Wolf, now a partner with the law firm McKin Gump in Washington, said that the administration is unlikely to signal exactly what action it will take unless Russia forces its hand by trying to take over more of Ukraine's territory. In 2014, in an earlier invasion, Russia took control of Crimea, a region of Ukraine, and continues to support local militias that control parts of the country's Donbass. In East European conflicts, Rome plays diplomatic role with aerial view. Thirty years after the dramatic breakup of the Soviet Union, tremors from that socio-political earthquake continue to reverberate through the vast terrain it once covered. An uprising in Kazakhstan earlier this month. Political strife in Belarus around its 2020 presidential election. Ongoing conflict at the Ukrainian-Russian border, more ominous by the day. How does the church understand these confusing events? It orients itself in three instructive ways as a local actor, as a neutral mediator, and as a peace-seeking faith. Pope Francis and Catholic teachings stretching back to Christ believe dialogue is a key to resolving misunderstanding, whether within families or on the cusp of war. Looking at examples of the Church's recent and unfolding actions in Central Asia and Eastern Europe gives insight into the unique Catholic mission to serve the common good, not just the faithful. It also helps explain why Washington and Rome diverge in perceptions of what's wrong, Catholics live in each of the 15 former Soviet republics, so the church is first, local. Giant Kazakhstan, as big as Western Europe, sits in a hot spot between two ambitious powers, Russia and China. It's a prosperous place, loaded with oil and gas reserves and some 100,000 Catholics. Kazakhstan was suddenly in the spotlight in early January when riots, ostensibly over gas prices, spread across the country. The Kazakh president called on the Collective Security Treaty Organization, a regional military alliance led by Russia, to quell the uprising. With the internet interrupted and few independent journalists in country, the conflict remained largely a mystery, even after life returned to normal. Enter Bishop José Luis Mumbiella, president of the country's Episcopal Conference, speaking on an Italian webinar regarding the church in Kazakhstan. A Spanish-born missionary priest living in Almaty since 1998, he gave an account of January's events, including ill-intentioned efforts to co-opt. The culture war is a class war in disguise. The idea that working-class Americans who vote for Republicans are voting against their economic interests has become dogma on the progressive left. 
For the life of them, Democrats can't understand why their proposals for an expanded welfare state do not appeal to the millions of downwardly mobile blue-collar workers in former union strongholds who turn states like West Virginia red. In response to the mystification of the left, many on the right have argued that people don't vote on economic issues as much as they do on cultural ones. The argument is that the left's cultural battles against traditional gender roles, the nuclear family and gun rights, and for abortion rights, have alienated Christian Americans to such a degree that they would be willing to sacrifice benefits like free pre-child care, paid sick leave and minimum wage hikes at the altar of their values. But something both sides seem to have lost sight of is the fact that a lot of what we call cultural battles are actually economic ones, or at least, they have an economic valence. Take the question of marriage. The idea that marriage is a positive value, and an important grounding unit for families, society and the nation more broadly, is decidedly outré on the left, where marriage is viewed as an outdated institution. Liberal outlets are chock-full of essays asking what does marriage ask us to give up, and why marriage requires amnesia. Divorce, meanwhile, is talked of as a form of home improvement. In 2020 Black Lives Matter had to scrub a page of its website that was a bit too honest. We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family. Pushing buttons, the Microsoft Activision deal is a chance to transform game development. Well, there's only one thing I was going to be talking about in this week's Pushing Buttons, isn't there? Since Microsoft very inconsiderately announced the biggest acquisition in gaming history just after last week's edition went out, the entire games industry has been in a flap. The $69 billion deal to buy Call of Duty, World of Warcraft and Overwatch publisher Activision Blizzard absolutely dwarfs the $7.5 billion that the House of Xbox paid for Zenimax slash Bethesda in 2020, which already had me feeling slightly uneasy about the amount of cash being thrown around by giant corporations, see also Tencent, whose run of acquisitions shows no sign of slowing down. This is more money than either of Microsoft's competitors in gaming, Sony, and Nintendo, could dream of shelling out. The acquisition instantly wiped $20 billion off Sony's share price, which gives some indication of the sheer force of this power play. But as I wrote in an analysis of the deal last week, this is about much more than games consoles, Microsoft wants to control as much of the gaming market as possible in future, and it's doing this through investing in content rather than hardware. The bet is that we'll mostly be playing games via streaming subscription services in the not-too-distant future, and if you have to pay £15 a month or however much to play Call of Duty via Game Pass, that future will certainly arrive sooner. Here's what's rankling me about this deal though, now that the dust is settling, and assuming that it gets past US regulators, who are supposedly cracking down on big tech companies and their drive to monopolize. Inclusive fitness is the alternative to toxic diet and weight loss culture. Like most social media apps, the fitness side of TikTok is full of content, workout regimes, food videos, and body-positive influencers float around for you pages sharing an overwhelming amount of information about personal health and body image. While some FYPs are awash in hundreds of gym brothers, visually appealing fruit bowls, and what I eat in a day videos, others are filled with less popular, but still important, conversations about what health means for people with diverse bodies and life experiences. Many of these conversations are helmed by fitness and health professionals who promote what they call an inclusive fitness culture, fat-positive, intersectional programs that don't focus on weight loss or goal-setting in the traditional sense and in doing so, subvert the often unapproachable, even unsafe, 
fitness spaces found both online and in person. Inclusive fitness culture acknowledges a variety of experiences and identities, people with disabilities, fat bodies, neurodivergent people who need accommodations in exercise programs, transgender and gender non-conforming people, and people of color. Just like the medical industry, health spaces contain a multitude of biases and institutional barriers that prevent the fitness world from being a safe space for all. In addition to male-dominated gyms that can put women in danger, queer and fat communities battle constant microaggressions in fitness spaces, and people of color navigate a world where their physical appearance is discriminated against. Intersectional fitness seeks to address the misogyny, racism, and fat phobia we've come to accept in the fitness world. So, in come a new generation of fitfluencers, using TikTok to share another perspective on health and fitness. Videos using the hashtag bodyinclusive hashtag have racked up more than 3 million views, while the broader hashtag diet culture and hashtag non-diet tags appear throughout the fitness content and have gathered hundreds of millions of viewers. Agatha Christie, Bommel's Cost Disease, and Inflation, an Economic Mystery Agatha Christie's autobiography, published posthumously in 1977, provides a fascinating window into the economic life of middle-class Britons a century ago. The year was 1919, the Great War had just ended, and Christie's husband Archie had just been demobilized as an officer in the British military. The couple's annual income was around £700, $50,000 in today's dollars, £500, $36,000, from his salary, and another £200, $14,000, in passive income. They rented a fourth-floor walk-up apartment in London with four bedrooms, two sitting rooms, and a nice outlook on green. The rent was £90 for a year, $530 per month in today's dollars. To keep it tidy, they hired a live-in maid for £36, $2,600, per year, which Christie described as an enormous sum in those days. The couple was expecting their first child, a girl, and they hired a nurse to look after her. Still, Christie didn't consider herself wealthy. Looking back, it seems to me extraordinary that we should have contemplated having both a nurse and a servant, Christie wrote. But they were considered essentials of life in those days, and were the last things we would have thought of dispensing with. To have committed the extravagance of a car, for instance, would never have entered our minds. Only the rich had cars. In 1919, Ford's Model T cost £170, around $12,000 in 2022 dollars. So a car was worth about three months of income for the Christie family, but almost five years of income for their maid. By modern standards, these numbers seem totally out of whack. An American family today with a household income of $50,000 might have one or even two cars. But they definitely wouldn't have a live-in maid or nanny. John Roberts gets an F on his annual report. Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court John Roberts. Every December, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States composes a year-end report on the federal judiciary. Despite the apparent ambition indicated by its title, it is meant to be boring. It is meant to be anodyne. It is not supposed to be the judicial version of the State of the Union so much as a trite message about how great things are going on the bench, usually with some boilerplate stats that show how hard judges are working. On first read, John Roberts's 2021 review does not disappoint. 
opening with a history lesson about the Judicial Conference, an advisory body founded 100 years ago that oversees the administration of the courts. It has all the stylistic markings the media consistently praises Roberts for, it is good-natured, reassuring, and banal to the point of hokey. Never mind that things are far from okay within the judiciary, that the judicial branch has been captured by an army of conservative hacks and the Supreme Court has veered so sharply to the right that even the general public has noticed, dragging its poll numbers to record lows. Roberts's nine-page report concerns itself with none of this. To the untrained eye, it reads as totally innocuous. I know better, however. Roberts's annual review has all the charms of an old country goose, ordinary and unassuming from a distance. Newt Gingrich invented Donald Trump's lock-them-up politics. This past weekend, Newt Gingrich appeared on Fox News to denounce the Democratic Voting Rights Bill before veering, as he is wont to do, into other topics on his mind. Gingrich segued into the January 6th commission, which was cruelly pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on legal fees, a tactic Gingrich himself pioneered in the 1990s but which was now not only wrong but somehow illegal. When Republicans gain control of Congress, he warned, they will prosecute the commission itself for unspecified crimes, when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down, and the wolves are going to find that they are now sheep, and they're the ones who are going to face a real risk of jail for the kind of laws they are breaking. Gingrich's host, Maria Bartiromo, rather than recoil in horror at this authoritarian-tinged threat, or even ask what crimes he had in mind, instead gushed, this is such great analysis. The man casually threatening to imprison members of a bipartisan commission investigating a violent attack on the Capitol is not some marginal screwball. His influence is ongoing, most recently through advising House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on strategies to win the midterm elections, and long-standing. Donald Trump's combination of bombast, ridiculous hair, and explosive political success would have been totally impossible were it not for Gingrich's prototype. A popular belief, especially among political centrists, holds that Trump is the antithesis of the old Republican ethos. On one side of this divide sits idea-oriented, Reaganite, small-government conservatism, and on the other, an angry, reflexively oppositional, authoritarian personality cult. Gingrich belies that simple and comforting dichotomy. His career shows how the two strands are so closely intertwined as to be indistinguishable.